One of the, uh, the deepest commitments of the Christian life, one of the most basic and fundamental, is uh, summarized for us in one of these ancient creeds, which goes like this. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Might not be right up there with the Apostles' Creed, but it is deep and true nonetheless. And if you were raised in the church like me, perhaps this was the first song that you learned in the nursery or the toddler room. It communicates something incredible, and children declare it every week. Looking back to uh, Psalm 8, when Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and was challenged by the religious leaders because children were praising him, he said, Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? See, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that some of its deepest truths can be learned, confessed, and obeyed by children such as the truth that this children's song conveys, which is straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Will you open with me to Matthew chapter 5? We'll continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. See, last, last Sunday we looked at Jesus' declaration about his people that they are the salt of the earth. And we saw that his people, who are true Christians, those who have been saved by faith in Christ alone, are those who have been transformed through that grace given to them in Christ. They've been transformed. Their lives are increasingly becoming the kind of life that you see in the Beatitudes, which is Christ-likeness. And as they live the kind of lives that we see in the Beatitudes, they have a gospel influence in society that has a conserving or a preserving effect. That is, they preserve the goodness, truth, and beauty of God in a world that is decaying under the influence of sin that's working through it. Today, we're going to look at what Jesus says next in verses 14 through 16, and we're going to see the gospel command of proclamation. Last week, we saw preservation or conservation. Today, we're going to see him command us to proclamation. And so we read Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To understand what Jesus meant when he said that his people are the salt of the earth, we had to understand what Jesus assumes about the world, namely that the world is in fact decaying under the influence of sin. Because it is decaying, his people serve as a conserving influence as they live out their faith. And likewise, to understand what he means by saying, you are the light of the world, we need to see what he assumes about the world in which we are to shine And to put it in probably the most biblical terms we can, what Jesus assumes, what we need to know is that the world is in darkness. The world is in darkness. Earlier in the service, we considered 1 John 1, 5 through 10, where we see that God is light. And that conveys to us his perfections, his holiness, his purity. There is no one like 
God. He is utterly above all things, and nothing and no one can be compared to him. He's pure. There's no shadow of evil in him in any way, shape, or form. And because of that, we see the apostle saying, in him is no darkness at all. See, the opposite of light is darkness. And if God is holy and pure, blameless, abounding in perfections, then those who are alienated from God, who are in sin, who are walking away from him and are corrupt, are, to be, are said to be in darkness. God is light, and all who are alienated from him are in darkness. And that's precisely the condition of this world. It's the condition of each of us apart from God's intervening and sovereign grace. In Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live distinctly Christian lives that reflect the saving and sanctifying grace of God. And so he writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He calls that darkness ignorance, alienation, because of hardness of heart. And so God is truth and righteousness, and those who reject him live in darkness, the falsehood of sin. What we saw from Genesis and all the way through, as we did a very quick survey of biblical history last week, is that that is a great way of considering the world. Because every person ever born except for Jesus is that they are spiritually dead. And they're committed to a life of self-gratification, a life of error, a life of sin, and very happy to do so, by the way. And when the Son of God became a man for our salvation, his rejection by the religious leaders and the Romans of his day was a picture, an ultimate picture of the darkness of the world. They ultimately crucified him, murdering him, because they did not, could not, allow his light to shine because it exposed the sin of their hearts. And so when he was talking to Nicodemus, Jesus said, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world was in darkness then. The world is in darkness now. People still love the darkness rather than the light, which is why Jesus said in the last beatitude, that his people would be those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All of us, apart from God and his grace, are in darkness and do not want the light. And while the world may be gladly walking on in darkness, what Jesus told Nicodemus holds out for us, both then and now, the blessed hope for a world in darkness. Jesus said, the light has come into the world. That light is Jesus Christ himself. I'd like you to imagine a scene with me for a moment. Go back 2,000 years to the time of Christ in Jerusalem. There were three feasts every year that every, uh, every Jewish male and their families, they would go up to Jerusalem to honor these feasts. And one of them was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is also what it's called. And it was celebrated for seven days each fall. 
and it was a commemoration of God's faithfulness to his people Israel in leading them out of Egypt and then sustaining them through their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so the Jews would come and they would set up these tent-like structures, these booths or tabernacles in the streets of Jerusalem, and they would live in these for seven days. And if you were a resident of Jerusalem, you would pitch your tent on the roof because you had a flat roof, and so you didn't have to worry about rolling off while you were sleeping. And what they would do on one of the nights of the festival, one of the highlights of this feast, was they would have a nighttime candlelighting ceremony. And just to, to think of it just as a candle lighting ceremony is kind of like our Advent candles is a bit misleading because this thing was massive. What they would do is they would have these four really tall candelabras, um, these torches that were as tall as the walls of the temple. And four fit young priests who could pull it off would climb up these ladders with the fire and they would light these torches and it would illuminate the whole temple in glory. And then they would come down and they would do exactly what you taught your kids not to do, which is to light their own torches and go dancing around. May have been a fire hazard, but they were just praising God. It was a glorious time of celebration. And now, go to the next morning, the torches have burned out. Jesus walks into the temple and he stands in the midst of everybody and he says, with this scene fresh in their minds from the night before, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what Jesus was saying to the people then, as he's saying to us today, is that he is the God who led his people out of Egypt. He is the God who in the pillar of cloud and fire led his people through the wilderness. He is the God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He is the light of life. And he had now united his eternal divine nature with a frail human nature so that as the sinless God-man, he could stand in place of sinners like you and me and bear our sins so that all who would turn to him and receive his perfect life lived under the law might be under condemnation no more. They might come out of darkness into the light. They might be led out of Jesus, not from Egypt, but out of slavery to sin and death and now have eternal life. Nailing their sins to the cross with him in his resurrection, proving that the transaction was complete, he says, I am the light of life. Perfect, holy, and pure. The one who leads his people where they could not lead themselves, doing in them and for them what they could never do for themselves and what they would never have wanted to do apart from his grace. That's Jesus. So I would ask you, is Jesus your light? Have you confessed your sins and your need of him and followed him? If you have, then his being the light of life has everything to do with who you are now to be in this world. And what he says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16 becomes the chiefest occupation you have this side of heaven. However, if you have not followed Jesus, if you have not, you personally, not turned from your sins, then you are still in the darkness of your sins. And if you're still in the darkness of your sins, then I would plead with you to recognize the desperate condition of your heart and that you face eternal separation from the light of God's presence. Jesus, in one of the times he was describing hell, calls it the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And it's what each of us deserves, but thanks be to him, he's given his son to lead us into the light that we may not be cast into the outer darkness. Today can be the day for somebody to come into the light of Christ, even now. He is worthy of worship, repentance, and obedience. And the Apostle John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood Uh, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, you are those who have seen the light of Christ who have believed in his name, who have received him, and who have been given the right to become children of God. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus refers to God as our Father who is in heaven, the first time that the New Testament records this. This in and of itself is a radical statement that God would be our Father, that we who were cast away in alienation from God because of our sins would not only be pardoned, cleansed, and forgiven, but now brought into the family. But that radical statement comes on the heels of another radical statement in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. If Jesus is the light of the world that shines the truth of God and his glory and salvation, then his people are now to be lights in this world that show his truth and glory and salvation. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at exactly what it means to be the light of the world. So let's look first at what Jesus says about our light in verses 14 and 15. What he makes clear to us is that as Christians, we are to be visible lights. We are to be visible lights And he uses two illustrations to communicate this to us, to show how important it is and how necessary, how unavoidable it is that we as Christians would be visible lights in a dark world. He says first that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now perhaps he was thinking of Jerusalem, which was high up, so that no matter which direction of the world you were coming from, to go to Jerusalem was to be going up to Jerusalem. You couldn't have missed it if you tried, if you were in the area. It was just there, shining out for all to see. Or perhaps Jesus had in mind the six cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Cities where if you were, as you're going about your daily life, accidentally killed somebody, you could flee to a city of refuge and find safe haven. Those cities were set on hills for a reason. They were in, uh, within a day's journey of anywhere in Israel so that if you were under the burden of blood, you could go see that city on a hill, whether it was day or night, because at night it would be shining, and you could find refuge. Jesus is the light of the world, set for us on a cross, on a hill called Calvary, so that we may see his light and find refuge in him. And now, because of who he is, we now function as his lights in the world. The second illustration he gives is of a common lamp. 
This was just a small everyday container that every Jew, no matter how poor they were, had. It had a hole for oil to be poured into it and a hole for a wick to be put into it so that you could light it when it got dark outside because when it was dark, the only way to see what was going on in the house was to light a lamp. And it would light the whole house because the common house in Israel of, of just your average everyday Jew was a one-room one dwelling. And either from the beam that held up the roof or from the wall would come a little shelf, a lampstand. And you'd put the lamp on that after you lit it and that lamp would illuminate the entire house. It gave light to everybody. And it was unthinkable that you would light that lamp and then put it under a measuring bowl or a basket because then it would, it may still be lit for a little while, but it was useless. Now, if you lit the lamp, it was so you could put it on the stand and so that you could see what was happening. And in the same way as the redeemed people of God in a world of darkness, the world should be unable to miss the character and grace and glory of God because he shines in us. You see, this is one of those few jobs we're going to do better here than in heaven. Because in heaven, there's no one in darkness who needs us to shine the light of Christ. Here, we are surrounded by those who are in darkness, who need that light more than they could ever imagine. And while we're here, our function is to show God's light. And so the apostle writes to the Ephesians. He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, do not be conformed to this world and its way of life. Instead, expose them. Not in a harsh, judgmental way that people don't want anything to do with, but just by living as God's faithful people in the world, the way that we're going to see Jesus talking about, that has an exposing effect so that people know they are in sin and they need a Savior. It should be unthinkable that we as Christians would be hidden. It's not in our nature. We are to be visible lights. But the thing that makes Jesus' statement so breathtaking is actually what we've already seen, that Jesus is the light of the world. And if he is the light of the world because he is God, then how are we to be the light of the world? As Jesus says here, and this is where we keep crystal clear the difference between us and our Savior. We may be fully human. He is fully human and fully God. His light is the divine light by his own nature as God. The God who led Israel in the wilderness. That was the claim he made at the Feast of Tabernacles. But what Jesus tells us here is that we are the light of the world, not in the divine sense, but rather we are the light of the world in a reflective sense. We are reflecting lights of, of God in this world. And the picture that God's painted for us of this truth is brought to mind every night when the moon comes out. Things are dark all around us, and in his wisdom, God gave a sun and a moon. We read about it in Genesis 1. In, in his wisdom, he, he did not give the moon a light of its own. Rather, the light of the night sky is a reflecting light. The moon's surface is oriented toward the sun. And when things get dark over here because the light has gone away for a time, the moon, oriented toward the sun, reflects its light to us. Sometimes less, 
like in a new moon phase, but when it's at its peak during the full moon, boy, doesn't it just stop you for a moment and you say, wow. I don't know about you, but I, I, I worship a little more during the full moon phase because God's glory is just shown in creation. And likewise, by analogy, we are to be soaking up so much of Jesus in prayer and Bible meditation and worship and fellowship that we would give off his divine light with such radiance that people would stop and wonder and say, wow, we don't have anything like that. And that's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this is from the Lord. We are reflecting lights of Christ. But more than that, I know you're like, can it get better? Friends, we are partaking lights. We are partaking lights of Christ. See, it's awesome enough to be able to reflect the glory of the Lord in the dark world, but we actually partake of the light of Christ. Our very nature is transformed as we are brought into union with our Savior. And so in Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, now you are light in the Lord. You don't just have the Lord's light. You are light in the Lord. You who were once bumbling along on your way to hell in your sins have become a partaker of the very life of God by faith in Jesus. Let that sink in. Friend, do you ever feel like the Christian life is defeating, difficult, and when in the world are we ever going to get it together? I feel that every week. But listen to what God has given you, what he says about you and your resource because of your faith in Jesus. Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Friends, in your Christian life, on your journey with the Lord, what's on your Amazon wish list? He's got it. It's yours. Do you need his resource? Go to him. Do you need more holiness? He's given you his. What is it that you need in your walk with the Lord? There is nothing off the table for you that God has given through Christ. You are a partaker of the divine nature, a reflector of his glory, and his light is now yours. Puts a new spin on how important it is to stay in communion with Jesus, doesn't it? Now, if we're partakers of God's own nature then it should be no surprise that one of the ways that Jesus describes our light here in Matthew 5.16 is that we would be attractive lights. That we would be attractive lights. When he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, he's talking about the quality, the attractiveness of our light. And of course, for those who know the Sermon on the Mount, you're thinking ahead to chapter 6 and you're going, hey, didn't Jesus say not to do your good stuff before people? but go into the closet and then your father will reward you in secret? Yes, he did say that. Now, is Jesus contradicting himself? Hello, we believe in inerrancy. Of course he's not contradicting himself. What he's saying is, in Matthew 6, he's addressing our temptation to be self-glorifying. And that's what the Pharisees would do. They would go out and they would do all these good works so that they may be seen and praised by others. 
Jesus says to us, let your light shine in such a way that your end game is the glory of God. It's not about you. Never has been. But as you're seeking to bring him glory, people will take note because your Christianity wasn't meant to be lived in a closet. Pray in the closet and live in the world. That's how we have a salty influence. That's how we shine the light of Christ. And when he says, let your light shine, he's commanding us to diligently show who God is. Remember, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that redeemed people look like their redeemer. And if he is the light of the world, then we are to strive to reflect his beauty at all times. So look at verse 16. You see the word good before the word works. So there's a couple different words for good that are translated as good. Um, One of them is the normal word for good that that talks about something being morally excellent. Ah, he's a good person. He's morally excellent. He really is an upstanding, solid citizen. And Jesus isn't using that word here. The word for good when he says good works in Matthew 5.16 is he's talking about the attractive quality of the works. The way that the works draw people in. They see it and they go, that is good. I want that. People recognize that true justice is better than injustice. They recognize that truth is better than the lies that the world is selling. They realize that a life of integrity and peace and joy are desirable and the world can't offer it. We're in a political year. We know that that stuff's not around. (laughs) But here in Jesus and in his people, those things are on display. Jesus specifically says that the world should see our good works. So works are definitely in view here. Works are definitely in view. And and what does he say that these works do? These, These deeds, these good deeds, they have a proclaiming effect. They communicate something about who God is and what he's like. Now, what are these good works? We talk a lot about good works. What are they? And if you're the kind of person who wants a list, who who really needs that checklist in order to get through your day and think, okay, I've done it, then just, okay, read your New Testament, take note of all the one another's and then the other commands, and then go do those things, that would be good works. But rather than particularly saying, here's what a good work is, oh, but that's not a good work, let's think about it like this. Anything we do because we love Jesus and want to bring him glory is good works. You may be walking through the parking lot of Winco and find some trash on the ground, Others are passing it by. Because you love Jesus and you want to honor him in his world, you pick it up and throw it away. That's a good work. Perhaps it's visiting somebody who's isolated and lonely because they've been locked inside for most of the year. It's a good work. Maybe helping a coworker in need. Good work. By doing the kinds of things that we see the Bible commending to us, the world should be able to take note that you belong to and have been with Jesus. You've heard that saying, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's rubbish. It's unbiblical. It's falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it didn't come from St. Francis or from the Bible. As we are doing the good works, those in and of themselves are not the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is, by definition, good through the mask, say it. Good news. It's good news. News has to be communicated with words. And so as we're about the business of doing good works, which are proclaiming 
who God is and what he is like, our words in sharing the gospel with unbelievers is absolutely part of what Christ is commanding when he says, let your light shine before others. British pastor and commentator John Stott says, since light is a common biblical symbol of truth, a Christian's shining light must surely include his spoken testimony. It must include his spoken testimony. Where the social justice gospel loses track is not in doing good works, it's in doing them without gospel proclamation. Friends, the light of the world is Jesus Christ, and Jesus is only known and believed when he is known and believed in the gospel. So we must be speaking and doing. Are you shining the light of Christ in your works and your words? Do the unbelievers in your life know that what you do, you do because you belong to Jesus? And do they know that Jesus died for them? You are the light that God has given in order that they would know him. And friends, this too, just like with what he said in the Psalm and in the Beatitudes, is an emphatic statement. It goes this way. You and you alone are the light of the world. There is no substitute for you in the sphere of darkness that God has placed you in. And the end game of our attractive works and words is not that people would make much of us. Nothing in scripture teaches that God intends for us to be made much of. Rather, what is going on here, as Jesus says in verse 16, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be glorifying lights as we are about the business of being visible, reflective, partaking, and attractive lights. We are to be glorifying lights. And as we glorify our Father and God by showing who he is. Now consider two different outcomes of your shining light in a dark world. Because you'll shine your light on some who will remain unbelievers, rejecting the gospel until they die. And you will shine your light on some who will believe and be saved. Are, is God glorified in both circumstances? First, how does God the Father get glory in your good works and words if those around you don't come to faith? And I'd suggest that if you've shown his character and shared his gospel in your actions and in your words, then God the Father is glorified, even if someone doesn't come to faith, in that they know that the goodness that you are showing in your life comes from God. That it's unmistakably from him. And by esteeming your life as a good one, esteeming your works as attractive, knowing that it's because of God the Father that those things are there, he gets the glory, even from those who end up saying, no, thank you. And then, of course, this one's easier to see. The Father is glorified when you show who he is by your life and words, and then someone does come to faith in Christ. Someone believes the gospel, repents, and follows after Jesus, and is around his throne forever, giving him praise and glory. And then themselves shining his light in the world. Of course, we see how that brings God glory. And so what's left for us is to examine our lives and words. Because you see, if you are in Christ, then you can't help but be his light in the world. Again, it's in your nature, insofar as you're a partaker of the divine nature. But are you letting that light illuminate the darkness around you? Or are there some ways that you're rather like a lamp that's been put under a basket or a measuring bowl? The light's still there, but it's not really doing any good. That's what we need to examine. 
probably my greatest preacher in all of church history, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once said about this, as I understand it, it seems to me to be an inevitable piece of logic and interpretation. There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. Is Christ your life's focus on Sunday only, or is he your evident Lord Monday through Saturday as well? Perhaps you need to come before the Father confessing that you have been only a formal Christian. And if so, then I would invite you to ask him. Ask him to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight, which is a fervent love for Christ and a desire to make him known in your works and in your words, and then you watch. Because that is exactly the type of prayer that he has promised to answer. Nothing would make him happier than to form Christ in you, that Christ may be your vision, your all in all, and that all may know it. Let your light shine in this world. This is the point of what Christ is saying. Put Christ on display in your life so that God gets the glory. Put Christ on display in your life so God gets the glory. And if you seek God for that, he will surely do it. And as you do, as you do going about putting Christ on display, you will preserve his goodness in a decaying society and you will proclaim his gospel and his glory in a dark world. And in all of it, he gets the glory. And isn't that, after all, the chief end for which we're here? Let's pray. Father, we come through your son, Jesus Christ, knowing that we can, in fact, call you Father because that is what you are. You have chosen us. And when we wanted nothing to do with you, you redeemed us through your Son. You have enlightened our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. You are transforming us from one degree of glory to another as we behold your Son. And you have promised that you will do this until you bring us all the way home and we shine like stars in the night sky. While we are here on this earth, Father, in these remaining days that we have, grant us a renewed fervor, a renewed commitment, perhaps a commitment for the first time, to be the light of Christ in a world of darkness. May it be our chief goal that in the missions that we support, in the jobs to which we go, in the entertainments that we enjoy, in the relationships that we pursue, in this world, Lord, in every way, with nothing off the table, may we seek to make Christ magnified. Do this in us, please, because we cannot do it in ourselves. Sustain us in this, for we are so easily weary. And we know that your purpose can never be thwarted. And so with thanks, we pray for these things, knowing that you will do it. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.